0: This is Look West, a podcast from California's Assembly Democrats. The legacy of gay pride is complex, enduring, and plays an incredibly important role in California culture. That's why every June at the state capitol, a chosen few are honored at the annual Pride Awards, celebrating activism, philanthropy, and even athletic achievements within the LGBTQ community. I'm Cindy Baker with Look West, and on this episode, Assemblymember Todd Gloria sits down with former NBA star, humanitarian, and Pride Award recipient, Jason Collins. Jason is widely known for being one of the first professional athletes to publicly come out, and he shares what that process was like both on and off the court. And just a quick warning, this episode does feature adult themes and language, so discretion is advised. I stand here today proud to introduce HR 41 to declare Pride Month in California, and I hope that you'll join me in doing so, not just here today with your vote, but in your home communities. Many of those communities where people like me still struggle to be who they are with the kind of dignity that they deserve as Californians. Hello everybody, I'm Assemblymember Todd Gloria, and you're listening to Look West. Today we're celebrating the culmination of Pride Month here in California with our annual Pride Awards here in the State Capitol. Joining me today to talk about the ceremony advocacy, and more is our special guest, Jason Collins. Jason, thanks for being here with us on the West.
1: Thank you, glad I could be here.
0: <laughs> so my first question off the top, is, so you're an NBA superstar, a Time 100 honoree, and now a California Pride honoree, which is the biggest accomplishment in your life?
1: <laughs> I think just being a, a happy uh, individual, I don't really, when it comes to awards, I, I don't rank them, uh, I'm just honored that people would consider me uh, for such recognition, to me, it's all about being a good son, being a good uncle, being a you know a, a good person, a good partner. You name it; just be, uh, trying to be a good person. I love that answer. Uh, for our listeners, we just completed a ceremony on the
0: floor in the legislature. Uh, eight. Californians all contributing to equality in the state. Uh, you're one of them. We think of it as our big award for the year from the California LGBTQ Caucus, and we're just glad to have you here. Can you maybe talk a little bit about your personal biography, kind of where you came from, how you how you ended up here in Sacramento today?
1: <laughs> sure, so um, I grew up in Southern California in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, my mom and uh, her sister, they grew up in Northern California, Uh, My grandparents, uh, they moved from uh, the segregated South in uh, upstate Louisiana to Richmond, California. And from Richmond, they moved to Daly City and one of the first uh, few African-American families to move into uh, the Daly City area. So uh, after they had my mom and my mom, you know, started her life, uh, she and my uh, father eventually settled in Los Angeles and uh, we were born in 1978 that was still uh, the time when uh, as a pregnant woman you could be carrying twins and not realize that you're carrying twins so on the day of our birth uh, with my brother um, the doctor turned uh, the nurse turned to the doctor and said there's one more in there and sure enough my brother jaron came out and uh, we you know, I had a great childhood. In can Southern I hop California. in there for a second? Sure.
0: There was a second one of you in there. Yes. For our listeners, they can assume an NBA player would be quite like, how tall are
1: you? I'm seven feet. And as a baby, I was seven, four, seven pounds, four ounces. And my brother was seven pounds, one ounce. So that's huge for twins yeah that's like normal sized child but yeah my uh, god but my parents well, let's just say they didn't have a good doctor but, uh.
0: <laughs> there have been many advances in medicine since yes, then hopefully so, so, yes, yes, yes.
1: <laughs> played every single sport growing up but around junior high school that was when I realized that I was uh, different that I had different feelings than my teammates and my friends going through puberty and I'm just, you know just having different crushes and feelings so I lied to myself and told myself a lie. Um, I, I describe it as knowing that the sky is blue, but telling yourself that it's red over and over and just trying to live that life. And it was difficult. It was a struggle. But uh, I finally uh, found the courage to come out uh, to a friend of mine in Los Angeles when I was 32, 33 years old. Yeah. And then the first family member that I came out to was my aunt. Um, she was always dropping clues that she knew uh, by using gender neutral pronouns when asking how my dating life was going. and I knew what she was doing. You know she's she's a judge, and she would you know casually mention that she married you know this couple and yes, and now they're husbands and husbands. And like you know, I like just subtly just dropping and I was like, I knew what she was doing kind of thing, but you know she was signaling that she was, you know gonna be an ally. and uh, I appreciate her for that and that's why you chose her that's why i chose her as the first family member to come out to and uh that was in 2011. and 2012 i came out to more and more family members and friends and played that year for the boston celtics and was traded to the washington wizards in 2013 and that's when I made the decision uh, that I wanted to come out publicly. Called my agent, Arn Tellem, and he's the one who sort of came up with the game plan for how to do it. And that was on the pages of uh, Sports Illustrated. And in uh, May of 2013, made history by uh, announcing to the world that you know I'm a, I'm a gay black man and I play professional sports and wanna still play professional sports because the game plan, for male athletes was to wait a couple years after you retire and then make an announcement but i said that (laughs) um i i I wanted to live my life and uh i was able to do that because i did have such a, a strong support circle with my family, with my friends. In February 2014, I made history by signing with the Brooklyn Nets. That's so cool. (laughs) So cool. It's funny
0: that you get uh, signed up with me to do this interview because... I think literally every other member of our caucus has some athletic ability. I have none. Uh, but maybe that's why we were paired together because I think about growing up and being so intimidated by sports, right? Mm-hmm. And that the the, I, you know, the stereotype and, and the fear of gym class or whatever. Yes. Did you feel that? I mean, you had the ability, but maybe you didn't have the same fear or maybe it was worse for you because you could uh, engage and, and, and be athletic.
1: I definitely, yeah, I, I, yes, I was definitely um, athletically talented. Um, it didn't always start out that way but we were uh five three in the third grade and oh, wow. we were growing so quickly that we were very uncoordinated and at that point we are six three six two at that point that was when our coordination really started and we were able to focus in on basketball um we were six six in the eighth grade <laughs> So <laughs> and that was when we got our first uh, recruiting letter it was actually from cal berkeley that was when we focused on basketball in order to get a Division One scholarship. We knew it was going to be a huge burden for our parents to pay for you know, putting twins through college. Yeah, And so we went to our parents and said, we want to focus on basketball and we want to get a Division One scholarship so that you guys don't have to pay for anything. Um, and then they said, OK, that's great. Um, but get to the point where you get to pick and choose whatever school you want to go to, which means you have to have the grades as well as the, the skill on the court. And that's what we were able to do. We and we ultimately uh, chose Stanford. But all while growing up, getting back to your question, yes, I definitely felt that angst. Uh, whenever my teammates would talk about uh, girls or dating, I would try to uh, leave the room. You know, you laugh, but you had, I had this pit in my stomach and that nervous energy, that rush that would come over and just try to, how can I change the subject? How can I get away? How can I... And and then also hearing language, uh, the homophobic and sexist language in the locker room as young boys. That you're sort of, unfortunately, you know, it's the culture um, sometimes that you just you use words without understanding the impact of those words. It really didn't hit me until I started, you know, coming out to my family and friends when I was playing for the Boston Celtics, and I was really coming to terms with this gay, like the gay identity, but like this part (laughs) of me that I had been denying. um, And when I finally accepted it, that was the first time that I I really started to like document to myself, how frequently would I hear homophobic language in the locker room? What'd you find out? And I actually kept a journal and um, it was in October, 2012. Training camp, uh, beginning of the season, right around then. And I stopped after two weeks because it was just too much. It was really? just, yeah, it was painful. It's so interesting because some of the people who I heard use homophobic language were some of my biggest supporters. Hmm. And it goes to show that a lot of guys, when they use these words, they don't, again, they don't understand the impact because they make assumptions like of like no one's in the room, so I, I can. And then also they, when I did step forward and say, you know, I'm a gay man, they applauded me. For mm-hmm. That and then I was like, Well, you were the first. I heard you say <laughs> the, You my, have so, receipts, yeah, yeah.' I, I, <laughs> but no, and I, um, I, I am so thankful that they were so supportive. I think that's
0: so interesting because it's uh, you know, I literally got out of gym class. Um, and I made up all the excuses in the world, yes. but it was because I was gay and I didn't want to go. And I knew what a volatile and difficult space that was. Mm-hmm. But you stayed in there and you, yeah. you, you toughed it out and well, you made a career out of
1: it. Yes. <laughs> yes. But it, the cool thing about sports, at least playing contact sports, is that you get to channel all of that emotion that you're feeling, all those like negative feelings, but turn it into a positive. And in contact sports, you get to hit people. <laughs> yeah, and you get to take it out. So uh, it's funny because when I um coach kids right now and you know, talk to my nieces and nephew and our parents sports, it's like when you cross the line, it's okay to be somebody different. It's so uh, and I, you know, especially to my nieces, um, like telling and like I try to show them um like a Serena Williams or someone who is intense and isn't gonna shrink and that it's okay to be demonstrative mm-hmm. and it's okay to be aggressive. In basketball, it actually helped me uh, that I had all those emotions because I, I played angry sometimes, yeah. and um, and it, it did help me.
0: We find our coping mechanisms, whether yes. it's humor. Um, yeah. There's the best little boy in the world syndrome, right? Yeah. Of being graded everything yes. else in yeah. order to the to, good to,
1: son. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, I think we can. That's we may not. You may be an athlete. I may may not be, but that's a commonality, yes. right? Definitely. Talk about going to the NBA. How that experience in high school or junior high. Was it fairly similar also in professional sports?
1: <clears throat> Let me just talk about the dream of being an athlete and like all of your hard work, your training, your sacrifices that you've made, the sacrifices that your family has made, uh, those around you. is all just been realized when your name gets called and you are now able to make it to the NBA mm-hmm. for your dream to come true of being a professional athlete. But then you realize that it's also a business. You go through and you understand that, um, and it goes back to something that my grandmother used to tell me, is that your reputation will go places you will never go. Mm-hmm. So you have to get that work ethic. You have to get that, that good reputation so that when you get cut or when you get traded or when something you know bad com- happens, that you know uh, people will talk positively about you and another opportunity might come up for you. So dealing with all the language that I would hear in the NBA locker room, anything, I always thought, okay, I have to be professional. Just be, try to be either the first person there or the last person to leave. Uh, It goes back to, again, trying to be the good, somebody now it's like the good teammate. That's part of the reason why I was able to come back into the NBA when I was a free agent, because I had that reputation, that I was a pro's pro and I was a good teammate. My brother also had that reputation. Uh, He played 10 years in the NBA. So between the two of us, if you name an NBA athlete, there's like three degrees of separation, maybe maximum between us and and that person. But you just learn to deal with
0: it. When you came out, this was news, big news, like massive news, like some yeah. non-Sports guy like me knew about it, right? Yeah. And saw and was in, in awe, really, because you were breaking this tremendous barrier. You were already famous by that point. By virtue of what you did, you yeah. were well-known. Talk about what that was just personally. Let's set aside your identity. What did that mean for the whole world to be looking at you and, and getting all this attention?
1: Well, I got some great advice from uh, a retired NBA basketball player, John Amici, who a couple years after he retired, he came out publicly He's based in uh, in the UK, but I was able to get a hold of him. He said, "Jason, you have to realize that um, all that reputation and the, your the labels that have been thrown at you, as far as being the pros pro and the hard worker, and that you know, you have to mentally prepare yourself to be called the gay one, the gay athlete, the gay basketball player." And I thought about it, and I said, "Well, you know, that's just another part of me. Yes, I'm gay, but..." Um, it just goes back to uh, labels that get thrown on, I think, on all of us, whether it's being the black one, the, the tall one, the smart one, whatever it yeah. was, um, those labels that get thrown at, thrown on you. And, and my parents taught me to celebrate and be proud of every single thing that makes me who I am. As far as being the gay one, it's like, yeah, that's me, but you know what? I'm going to be proud of that. And When I made my announcement, and yes, the flood of media and the attention and all that, I got some great advice from President Bill Clinton, who knows a thing or two about being in the media spotlight. Uh, I was was classmates with Chelsea at Stanford, and she's a really close friend. Before I made the public announcement, I came out to a lot of people in my private life, and the Clintons were were some of the people that I came out to, and and, uh, Bill said to me, Jason, in that moment when it feels like it's overwhelming, take a deep breath, close your eyes, and just keep moving forward. And um, and that helped. It definitely helped when I got back-to-back calls from Oprah Winfrey and President Barack Obama. Like that's, that's a good day. That's a good day. And that's like, <laughs> just, like when you when that stuff type you know starts happening, and all these other opportunities um, you know come come around. You know, just in that moment, just to like, okay, I'm not gonna panic. I'm just gonna, you know, take it. You know, take a deep breath, close my eyes, and keep moving forward.
0: I mean, meeting Oprah is like every gay man's fantasy, right? Yes, and, Oprah. And you did it like right when you're walking yes. out. Yeah. I, I just, I, but talk about what it is, because I. It sounds like you've done some
1: kind well, of funny with... story about Oprah. Oh well, don't let me
0: stand in your okay. way. Go ahead. <laughs> so,
1: so before the story broke, we knew there was it was going to break on a Monday. I asked my family, my parents, you know, everyone, do you guys want to do any kind of media? Do you want to do any? And they all said, no, 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 no. This is you. You know, we're here to support you. So when I called them, my mom in particular, to tell her that uh, I just got off the phone with Oprah, and she wants to interview not only me but the entire family. Do you think you, you know, can can do that? And then she's like, Oh God, I got to get my hair done. I got to get my nails done. I got to get. And then we called my aunt who is a judge and has keeps a very busy calendar and schedule as you can imagine and uh she was able to get a continuance and put some people <laughs> <on>. <laughs> i think that's day. the my priority yeah, i don't know about <laughs> anyone else able to make it down and, uh, <laughs> so we all walk in to this suite and like we did not like meet oprah before like she wanted to videotape the reaction like of everybody's reaction for the first time meeting her so you, it's like you go through a door and then all of a sudden she's right there on, with like big couches he's like hello me <laughs> really like this and just like he's like oh god did <laughs> you get a car that day i did I not get a though? car okay, right. but i got some uh i got what do you call that ace of Spade champagne that oh okay not, yeah that worked <laughs> and i actually gave that to um a bottle of that to uh, Lance Bass when he uh, got engaged. Uh, who, and that's another thing. It's like all of a sudden you like you start meeting like other people yeah. who are you know celebrities and um, becoming friends. And yeah. we are
0: a family, and it's yes, it is. a uh, there is your your born family and then your chosen family, Definitely. and and integrating that. And I guess that's what I, I'm kind of getting to is the thinking about how difficult a process coming out was for me, yeah. for you to have to do that. In such a national way, with such historic implications, mm. you know, I just think about self care and, you know, just you know doing what you need. Not only just do your job, but meanwhile you're sitting having champagne with Oprah. Yeah, I mean, I like, <laughs> it, it might be amazing, but at the same time, that could have been really hard. Was it hard?
1: It, it was. Um, but again, I, I had a great support system, I had a great strong family who had mm-hmm. my back. And uh, at the end of the night, I was able to go over to my brother and his uh, wife's house and read a book. To my nieces and nephew, and tuck them in, and just you know, get back to you know, even as hectic and busy and surreal as that day was, in the normalcy of being with my nieces and nephew, Hmm. and just how grounded they always keep me grounded.
0: But still, the ranks of out athletes are pretty small. Yes, what do you think that is, and do you think that's going to change, and do you know of a lot of folks who are still kind of grappling eternally or want to come out. I mean, tell us some more about that because it's, you know, I'd hope that for, if I had a niece or a nephew who would come out later in life I've, and they were athletic, I'd hope that they wouldn't be ashamed of that. I wouldn't mm. hope they would have either your experience or mine that they could just be, right? Yes. Um, wh- what do you think holds back people from coming out more in professional the, sports? There's
1: still the fear of, um, the fear of rejection, which I think all members of the LGBT, um, when you're coming out to some, well, I don't know, you're, but I'm sure that there were some people you were fearful of coming out to that kind of thing. I um, that fear of rejection, even though some people that I know love me, but will they still love me if I tell them that I'm gay, lesbian, transgender, you know, member of the community. Female athletes have been doing this for decades, starting with Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova, and the list goes on and on. Brittany Griner, uh, recently Elena Deladon, who was a MVP of the WNBA a couple of years ago, she came out right before the Rio Olympics. And everyone was like, okay, cool. Now go win a gold medal. And um, my dream is for when male athletes come out, for it to be sort of the reaction with female athletes where it's like, okay, cool. Now go win a title. You know, cheering on now with the Women's World Cup team. And they have so many out athletes right now. That representation is so important, that visibility. Uh, Unfortunately, with male athletes in the big four or... I'll, I'll throw soccer in their big five uh, sports leagues. There is only one current out male athlete, and his name is Colin Martin, and he plays for the Minnesota United in uh, Major League Soccer. Um, I know that there are others. I'm in contact with a couple. You know, ev- everyone's on their own path. Um, I never tell someone what they should and shouldn't do. I just say, sort of, lay down the facts, mm-hmm. and the facts are that when and if you choose to step forward, you will have people cheering you on. Uh, When you look at my example, when I got back into the NBA, my jersey was the number one best-selling jersey. Not LeBron James, not Steph Curry, Jason Collins was the number one best-selling jersey. That's awesome. So that shows you that the support is there and also shows the leagues (laughs) that the purchasing power of the LGBTQ community and the allies. And it's also great to see that the uh, leagues have stepped up. Um, I think the NBA is leading the way. I think we have the best commissioner in all sports, Adam Silver. Uh, We were the first to march in the New York City Pride Parade. Um, Last year, uh, all the other sports leagues sort of caught up and marched and participated in some way. We had active players in the NBA showing their allyship by being on the float with us.
0: And you're exactly right. That's the power of coming out, right? Yeah. It isn't just the the political statement that it is, but it's the, the hearts and minds of the people around you that change. I, yeah. I didn't grow up with any LGBTQ role models. Um, my parents were not particularly I think mean, culturally competent would be a nice way to phrase it. Okay. But since I told them they have never missed a pride parade, in fact, <laughs> fast forward to today, they're usually the ones telling me, you know what's coming up in a couple of weeks? So you <laughs> ready? We're right. ready to march. You ready? And yeah. and that's what we can do. Right. Yes. That's, that's, our, that's the ripple mm-hmm. effect of what we do.
1: And it's also really cool is just how sports can transcend so many different parts of our society because sometimes it's difficult for straight people to talk about LGBTQ issues. However, when you put it in the context of sports, it's like, hey, did you see that basketball player come out and then it starts a dialogue Mm -hmm. because the only way you know as you know things will change is if if we talk about it
0: i'm curious about your experiences as a gay man of color i'm a gay man of color i think that's an additional complexity yeah maybe talk about what that is uh, for you so we we talked about what it is to be a gay man uh, in professional sports Mm -hmm. what is it to be a black man in the lgbtq community
1: When I first came out, I was invited to a lot of parties and functions and events. Um, When you walk into the room, it's almost like I can count the minorities on, on one hand kind of thing. That's why I feel it's important for anyone who goes through a door to make sure that you put your hand back and try to pull someone else who looks like you or has walked your path through the door as well. I go into those functions now. I try to be a voice in the room and... You know, speaking up is like, hey, we need more <laughs> black, brown, <laughs> Asian, minority. So we need, we need more color. Here. Help us. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, and um, it, that's also really cool. Why uh, this lapel pin with the more color, more pride? Um, recently, I designed a sock for the Point Foundation. The Point Foundation is our country's largest scholarship uh, granting organization for LGBTQ. Uh, students pursuing higher education. Uh, when I designed the sock, I made sure that we had more color than just the the normal rainbow where I put uh, a pink stripe in there. I uh, put a brown, a black, and um, you can go to Pride Socks <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and know that a portion of the proceeds are going to help a, a great organization. It's important, that visibility. And I yeah. remember speaking to the woman who was in the Philadelphia um, Mayor's office. I think she's in the mayor's office, but it, she's an African American um, queer woman, and she was the one whose idea was to put more color, more pride, to put the stripes. And she was talking about all the hate mail that she yeah. got from white LGBTQ community yeah. by adding a brown stripe and a black stripe to the flag, and um, she got death threats actually. And it's just it's crazy when. Just by saying "more colors, more pride." Yeah,
0: I th- I feel that same invisibility you're talking about when walking into some of those rooms, or actually the reverse. You know, you're the only one, but mm-hmm. in some ways it feels invisible. I've certainly had people talk to me about the "more colors, more pride" in such a hateful way, and these are members of our community, yeah. and they're expressing it to me, and I'm very obviously a person of color, <laughs> and uh, it's just shocking to me. And I think you know it is possible to be a part of a, a of a a marginalized group and still have prejudice, right? Yes. And it's an internal conversation in the community that's continuing to go on. I'm thinking about when I was chair of the our, neighbor, our LGBT community center down in San Diego, you know, mm-hmm. community that abuts to Mexico, right? Yes. We literally touch, and it was important to me to have the Mexican flag on the stage because we service a lot of yes. uh, Latino people, yeah. um, a lot of that are citizen and not. And um, I remember getting complaints about how could we possibly do that, which maybe brings me to the next thing I wanted to ask you about was that we had a chance to meet yes. uh, a few months ago uh, when both of us uh, traveled to Tijuana. Um, intersectionality being what it is, we know that there are many of the asylees, the migrants. Uh, who are coming up from Central America? Um, are members of our community? Yeah. Um,
1: talk about what you saw that day. Kind of what, it, how it made you feel? There are two organizations: um, Equality California, and then also uh, an organization called This Is About Humanity, which uh, one of the founders of that was my sister-in-law. So I, I she's she's been saying, okay, you got to come on a trip. You got to come on a trip. And when she told me about the LGBTQ um aspect of this one particular I was like okay i'm gonna be there i'm gonna be there to support you and 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 to go see for myself what's going on down there it's heartbreaking absolutely heartbreaking devastating and it got me thinking just how by the grace of god that i was born in the states versus um being born in central america or and uh when one woman uh, told her story and she was trafficked and made an escape and you know, she has gangs looking out for her, looking for her. And she just said, I just want to live. And hearing, just, um, and then going to the other shelters and seeing the kids and the families there and sharing like some with six, eight people sharing one tiny tent and just, it is heartbreaking what's going on at the border. It's, it's infuriating that as Americans that we aren't doing more to help. We, and so many people, because after their trip was over, I, I live in an area where there are Republicans and I was telling them about the story and, or about the trip and one woman said, well, they're coming into the country illegally. And I was like, no, they're legally seeking asylum. This is legal, what they're doing. And we're treating them this way, which is why it's so important that we get as many people to vote as we know, and especially in battleground states. We need to change. We can do better than this. This is this is. We have children dying, and that is, we can do better.
0: Yeah, that's a fact. I think it's interesting the connection. I don't know if it's like if you're like me, but I I was a again, best little boy in the world, Mm -hmm. uh, good son uh, routine, it wasn't until I came out that I found my voice as an activist. And it sounds like that may have been the case for you that you've done in the context of sports and now for immigrant rights and electoral reform and and just political change that you've really been able to find a voice and and use this platform that you've built through a lot of hard work over a very long time uh, to try and do More good.
1: Well, and also it hits home, again, because my nieces and nephews, uh, they're biracial, black and Mexican. And Valentina, the eight-year-old, when um, Donald Trump won, one of her classmates, so she was probably six years old at that time. uh, She was in kindergarten. One of her classmates said to her, oh, you're going to have to go over the wall now. Mm. And you know that this kid was in kindergarten at the time when he said that he, did, he that's his parents talking like where do, you know where, kids aren't born to hate like he's he was taught that. so and to, for my brother and his wife to have to explain to their six-year-old daughter at the time where that boy's comments are coming from and having to explain to her because I, I think at every and everyone's who's a person of color, their parents if they're doing things right they should you know you have to have the talk with them. Yeah. And I don't think my sister-in-law and my brother were expecting to have the talk at 6 years old. You know, given the culture, you know, culture and the way that society is right now, you're having to talk with your your children at a younger and younger age. Yeah. Yeah, I had the yeah. talk too. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I think we're about out of time. Any mm-hmm. maybe last thoughts for our listeners? Uh, what uh, What is 2019 and 2020 how, hold, hold in store for uh, well, Jason Collins? Uh,
1: so I want to end positive because I, I I know that we talked about some really you know tough issues. Um, and Oprah. We talked yes, about so we Oprah. Yes, we did talk it about happens. Oprah. We did talk about Oprah. <laughs> but uh, again, it's about using your voice, and your voice is your vote, that especially if you are um, a person of color, that people have literally died for your, for you to have the opportunity to vote. Tell your friends, your family, especially if they're in battleground states that they gotta get registered to vote.
0: I just wanna say, Jason, uh, on behalf of all of us here at the Capitol, we are so proud and so grateful that you'd come. Congratulations uh, on your pride award. But most of all, thank you for being a role model for uh, little LGBTQ uh, boys and girls and all things in between. all over the world who can look to you and see um, that they can be whatever they want, right? Um, yes, definitely. And uh, you give us a lot of hope, uh, and that's, I think, why we selected you to be <laughs> one of our pride arteries this year. So um, I'd say uh, for all of our listeners out there, thank you again to Jason Collins for joining us. I'm Todd Gloria. This was Look West. The Look West podcast is produced by the California Assembly Democrats. Please subscribe and rate this show wherever you get your favorite podcast. And when you think of California and politics, remember to look west.